Hello and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name is Adam and this is episode 120. Um, it is the 11th in our Beyond a Joke um, series which we're doing all year and probably part of next year because I just keep finding amazing people to talk to about this topic. Um, yeah, I ask um, people that I find amazing to come along and talk to me about something that has made them laugh and we usually use that something as a way into a conversation about the things that they do and make and the things that they love so yeah that's where we're at so in this episode um, I get to talk to Anna Pendergrast and Kelly Pendergrast um, two amazing people who do amazing things and yeah one of the great things about having a podcast is that um people that I really um, find inspiring and amazing it's it's an excuse it's sort of an icebreaker to get to talk to them so um, yeah in this episode Anna and Kelly bring along a really great topic a really great thing that has made them laugh um, it's a section called the laughter lift and it's a segment that um, plays on the Komodo Mayo's take um, podcast um, another great thing about this um, podcast is that I get introduced to all sorts of things that people are excited about and yeah I've just learned so much this year about all sorts of things anyway um Anna and Kelly do a lot of different things. Um, together they're the founders of Antistatic, um, which is a research and communications consultancy. Um, like no other I have ever found, actually. Uh, they do incredible work in all sorts of different areas, and we get to talk about this on the podcast. So one of the things that they are doing, um, and possibly the latest thing that they have done is to edit an incredible book which is called More Zeros and Ones. Um, it is published by BWB um, who make just the most magnificent books um, and this is another book that is magnificent. Um, so this book is a series of essays. Um, Anna and Kelly talk about it in the podcast but I just wanted to sort of talk about it in the introduction here just to say I just can't recommend it enough um, I love it um, it's incredibly beautifully edited in a way that allows a lot of different voices to speak in a lot of different ways and yeah it's, it's a beautiful book I just think rush out and grab that um, I was really excited to talk to Anna and Kelly um, about things that make them laugh because I think because of their real understanding about communication and all the forms that communication takes, I was really interested to see what they had to say about laughter acts. And also their work is often very playful, so I was interested um, to talk about that idea of play and seriousness and critique. And yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm totally spoiling it. Um, we also talk about jokes, um, which is very helpful for me um, because we sort of decide that because of the structure of a joke, even if you mess it up, it's still hopefully there's something funny about it. Um, and the reason I was thinking about myself selfishly is that I am um, sort of spending the last week sort of practicing my bit um, for the verb after hours beyond a joke night, which is coming up next week, which I am terrified about. Um, but also excited. Um, I know this is shameless self-promotion. There are still tickets available. It's on Thursday the 3rd of November, 8.30pm at Meow in Wellington. So if you're around, come on down. Um, not necessarily to see me, but um, the panel is just unbelievable. Um, 
James Nokisi will be there, um, Joe Randerson, Joanna Cho, um, Amon Mara and Gabby Anderson. And yeah, it's, they are incredibly talented people. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to the night for that reason. So there we go. Introduce the podcast. Shamelessly self-promoted. I've done everything I came here to do. I really hope you enjoy this episode and thank you so much for listening. Thank you for subscribing um, and thank you for everyone that downloads the podcast without subscribing as well. Um, I am yeah, constantly amazed by how many people listen according to the statistics and yeah, it, it means heaps. Um, yeah, it, it, it just means heaps. I often think when I'm recording or um, making these little introductions I often think of us all in a big room together so yeah thank you so much and um, yeah I hope you have a lovely week the next time I talk to you it'll be post verb verb has just got the most incredible events on I really hope you're in Wellington and can enjoy some of them and um, yeah have a really lovely lit call thank you Hi Anna and Kelly, how are you? Anna, how are you? I'm good, thanks Pip. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate it. And Kelly, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks both for coming. I mean, it's just, yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you about a whole bunch of things. And I wonder um, if we could start um, by both of you introducing yourself. And I wonder, Anna, do you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, kia ora, I'm Anna Pendergrass and I'm based here in Pornicky and I am a writer and a bit of a generalist, a bit of research, communications and policy work as well. Um, and most of my work uh, is with Kelly as uh, anti-static and we focus on issues around digital technology um, and how they interact with people's lives and also the environment. Awesome. Thank you. And Kelly. Kia ora, Pip. Um, kia ora everyone, I'm Kelly, I am uh, the other half of Anti-Static and I'm based in Oakland, California, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I'm a writer as well, my background in art, a little bit of a retired artist at the moment or on hiatus <laughs> maybe, um, but I work with Anna on Anti-Static, we write, research and do kind of general comm stuff and yeah, I've been living in California for the last 15 years or so but have been working with Anna closely for about the last five or six. That is so awesome and we're here to celebrate your amazing book. Do one of you want to um, like tell us the title of your book or anything about your book or yeah. I can do that. Uh, so our book was uh, just published last month now by Bridget Williams Books and it's called More Zeros and Ones Digital Technology Maintenance and Equity in Aotearoa New Zealand and we were the editors, so it's an anthology volume with nine chapters by lots of really smart, cool people on different issues around digital technology in Aotearoa. I know I'm going to say this a lot during the podcast, but it is just stellar. Like, it is just such an amazing book. And I've actually been, like, handing it out to friends that are working all over. <laughs> Even though most of them, you know, like, I was, I was, yeah, my partner works at Parliamentary Library, and I was like, you have to get a copy. And he was like, we have a copy. And I was like, there you go. <laughs> I like that a lot very good thank you for doing our job for us <laughs> it's amazing I will do it forever um <laughs> now I asked you to bring along something that makes you laugh I know that a lot of the topics in your book are quite um I think they're quite serious and quite profound but you were really great and generous and brought along something that has made you laugh recently and I wonder which one of you would like to introduce it Kelly would you like to introduce it yeah, I can introduce it. We brought along something which has very little honestly to do with our book, 
but it's something that makes both of us laugh and it's pretty damn corny. Um, it's a segment called The Laughter Lift, which is just a short part of this British film review podcast um, that we both listen to, which is hosted by a film scholar, Mark Kermode and radio presenter, Simon Mayo. And this Laughter Lift segment kind of has nothing to do with film either. It's just a really short section where Simon Mayo, the presenter, tells about three or four jokes, you know, just straight up jokes with a setup and a punchline. Um, and I think they're mostly scripted by the show's producer. And this goes over the sound of some kind of corny background music. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So it's just, it's two minutes of jokes over some background <laughs> music. And usually I listen, I'm listening to it while I'm making dinner or something like that. And then when my partner gets home, I tell him the jokes, you know, and they're mostly <laughs> terrible. He doesn't want to hear them, but I just get a kick out of it. Um, I really, um, and perhaps like one of the things I found really interesting about this is that they are very conventional jokes. Like they're very, like, yeah, they're very conventional in their form. They're very conventional and, you know, like they're generally not edgy. Um, and I just, and I was the same, like I just found myself laughing and I wonder if you've got any thoughts about like, is it the obviousness of them that's funny? I don't know. Have you got any thoughts about why they're funny? I kind of, kind of yes and no probably. So I think they're absolutely obvious. And just before we started talking this morning, I was listening to the, the podcast that just came out today and jumped straight to the laughter lift to, to have a listen <laughs> And I repeated uh, the joke both to Devin, my husband, and my housemate, Mish. And both of them, like, did the groan laugh. But they also <laughs> laughed extremely hard. They were like, this is a terrible joke. But also, this is very, very funny. So I think it's some of the obviousness. And also really appreciate that the script is often written in this kind of conversational language that brings in lots of the other, you know, they talk about their spouses, you know, uh, in the kind of way that they do in kind of code language throughout the the podcast in general. So it, when I first started hearing them, you know, years ago, I was like, this took me a while to click, oh, this is joke time, but you know, you're doing it in the kind of uh, flow of your regular storytelling. So maybe there's a bit of that as well. But Kelly, you probably have thought. Well, I just don't feel like you don't get to hear a joke very often these days. Mm. Well, maybe, I mean, to be honest, I don't go to stand up and I don't really listen to people's specials very much. So maybe this is on me. But I feel like just a regular old set them up and knock them down joke, um, kind of like underutilized. And sometimes you're at a dinner party and I wish that I knew a joke, you know, I wish that I could pull a joke out of my hat to have on conversation. And there's actually a couple from the, the segment that I've remembered over the years and have definitely reeled out at times. So I think I like that it's kind of like it's very like vaudeville. It's very variety show um, and kind of adds, you know, adds to this um, the format of the podcast where it's not just an hour and a half of banter these little sections and things like that, which I kind of enjoy. Yeah, I, I think, um, sorry, I, I always take things way too seriously, but um, I was just thinking the way you're talking about this amazing kind of almost folk oral tradition of sort of, it's the repeating of the joke, which is really fun as well. And it seems, I don't know, and again, sort of tying in with your book, this idea that we have this new digital ability to listen to amazing content from all over the world and also that seeps into our slower, well, I don't know if it's slower, but it seeps into sort of our, our social lives as well, you know, our physical kind of meat space lives as well, which I think is really interesting. Sorry, that Definitely. got too deep. No, not, a, no, not at all. I mean, and I think I like the, do appreciate this, the flow of the oral tradition as well. And the, the fact it's about repetition 
and it's also about like practicing this conversational muscle of delivery you know and um learning to use conversation in that way and learning to kind of uh, be a performer as well I think is really difficult and so I think telling a joke is like a fun opportunity to like practice that kind of performance and when I repeat them back to anyone I realize how bad I am at it compared to <laughs> these radio hosts you know they've just been doing it for years and then so often when I tell the same joke two minutes later to somebody it just falls utterly flat and I just realize I, I haven't honed those skills have you got any thoughts Anna about telling jokes uh beyond the fact that I'm not very good at it and that it's uh, like <laughs> it, it's the same thing that Kelly was saying that you realize when you try and repeat the joke that oh actually it's a some people are probably quite naturals at it but it's also a skill and a you know very very well honed skill by many people and that's not a skill that I have. And I really do appreciate it when people make it look like any skill, when people make it look extremely easy, but you know that if you were going to learn it, it would take a long time. (laughs) And I think that, I I don't know, like I keep thinking about structures and systems. Sorry, just having reread your book this morning. Like I think also that's kind of interesting as well. And that um, the framework is quite tight, you know, like even if I fuck it up completely there's still people are like oh I know what's supposed to happen here and Pip fucked it up so that's funny as well you know and I think that's a big (laughs) part of it like often like a couple I listened to they were like oh didn't you already tell that joke last week and you know like it was just really great it was real cool definitely we're it's just an interesting conversational form and like deviations from the form are funny and interesting as well right (laughs) it's so true so true um this is a fantastic podcast like I'm really grateful that you introduced it to me like since you um let me know about it very recently I've sort of quite listened to quite a lot and one of the things that just seems to work so well is the partnership between the two hosts and I think you two are one of the most successful sort of working creating partnerships that I can think of when I think about them and I just wonder if you've got any thoughts a about what works in the podcast but also just from your own experience what works to sort of maintain creative relationships to even just the practicalities of work working together yeah I think one of the things that drew me at least to the podcast which I was introduced to by my husband Bevan like 10 years ago so I've been listening for a long time and I felt very proud to introduce it to Kelly because over our lives she's always introduced me to things new music new books whatever and so I was like yes this is something she's gonna like that I can introduce so I felt smug uh but uh so we've both been listening for quite a long time before we started working together kind of in earnest on anti-static um but one of the things I really like about it is their rapport it's so easy these two people that obviously really like each other have again quite different background skill sets but they work together really really well and their banter is just great and they're both so generous to each other and I think that that's one of the big things that kind of uh, is so great about the podcast and also their rapport with the audience. They really respect and like and trust the audience. And I think that makes a huge difference as well, that a lot of content comes from the people that listen who are also cool and smart, I say, as someone that is an audience member. But um, so I really like that. And Kelly, I'm going to throw over to you to start talking about how we work together and I'll jump in. I mean, being siblings, we've kind of worked together in some capacity for a long time. And I feel like we haven't, I was just thinking about the way that our kind of like work together, which didn't used to be work, it used to just be a relationship together, has evolved over the years and how we got to the place where we can actually work together. But, you know, we used to argue a lot, we used to fight a lot, but also used to always do creative projects together, even when we were young. Um, 
Anna reminded me of a club that I started and demanded that Anna be in, which was called Fun Club, which I think was based on brownies or girl guides or something like that. And I probably was about 10, even younger, eight. Anna would have been about five. And it was a club where you, the goal, well, the goal wasn't to have fun. The goal was for me to be a little tyrant and to do challenges <laughs> To, to come up with challenges that Anna had to participate in. To get badges. That fun club did not live up to his name. And so, you know, I like to be the bossy older sister. I like to, like, be the one who knew about cool music. Um, and then Anna liked to be the one who threw a little temper tantrum, rightly so most of the time. So I think it really took us going out our separate ways and, like, becoming adults separately while also still talking and having, you know, having having a close sibling relationship and then... I moved to the States. I was doing kind of like, you know, art and film stuff and then kind of um, arts, nonprofit stuff. Anna worked for the government, did public service stuff and policy stuff. So we both kind of built these different skill sets, lived in different places. And then I think with all of that, like with our longstanding relationship and then with kind of like our own wellsprings of knowledge, we were in a place to be able to work together in a way that was kind of productive and on more equal footing, you know? And then in terms of like maintaining a creative partnership, Anna, I don't know I feel like Anne is the one who thinks a lot about relationship dynamics and part, the, the dynamics of creative partnerships and so I'm gonna throw it back to you well I just feel very lucky that like I feel like we do maintain our relationship but it's often just because we talk pretty much every single day mm-hmm. and usually about work stuff like often when mum will text me and be like oh have you heard from Kelly oh we <laughs> I don't actually know how she's doing at the moment I assume she's fine but I did talk to her for three hours today so we do I think just uh the kind of digital proximity like not actual physical proximity of talking all the time kind of helps keep that relationship together and I think we've just yesterday we both kind of re-remembered that a lot of our kind of work and doing our best work focuses on us just like talking together like having a conversation if either of us gets stuck we remember or we can just talk about this generally or kind of very very broadly and we'll usually get some kind of breakthrough that way so I think a lot of it we're lucky we don't have to have particular structures in about how we're going to sort of keep and build our relationship and that we know what our kind of strengths are and can kind of build off these if we get stuck and I I think we're very lucky to have the relationship we do and I'm really fascinated in other people that have partnerships as well but I don't know if there's a secret a part of it is just that we keep doing it yeah my god that just sounds so um I don't know like it's so helpful yeah I was just just, oh, yeah, I, I just think it sounds so helpful. And I just, it just reinforces how perfect you are to be editors of this book. You know, just this fact of, you know, like I keep thinking about the way in the book you talk over and over again and people talk, well, you in your introduction, sorry. And then people talk over and over again about this idea of socio-technology. And it just, it, it kind of blew my mind because I think, I often think there's the things that I do as a human and then there's the things that I do in technology and I sort of keep them quite separate. And I don't know, the book gave me a lot of hope, you know, like having grown up through sort of human-centered design, which was such a, yeah, like... <laughs> such an interesting concept which all seemed to be when I was doing it um driven around making avatars of a certain person and yeah oddness yeah but I just wonder I don't know like I'm kind of leaping all over the place but I do wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that idea of socio-technology you or or the approach that the book takes as far as that goes yep thinking about another thing that sustains our partnership this isn't necessarily very diplomatic to say, but I think sometimes being a hater, both in both of us, being a hater of certain things sometimes at mm-hmm. the same time is useful. And so I think with this book and kind of constantly talking about this idea of socio-technical systems, which is obviously 
the idea that there's not society and then technology that's separate. It's that technology and the way that it's used exists within this kind of a, a system that involves both technical stuff and digital stuff and machines and computers and then also people, the people that design them and operate them. So I think our the thing that we've been haters on for a few years now and um, have an axe to grind is just the way that people talk about, uh, often in the media or often technologists, talk about technology like it's a force of nature or like it's something that has agency in itself. And even people who write critical work about technology um, or are trying to investigate how it work and works and make it better, oftentimes default to talking about technology as this thing in itself, as though it, you know, it has the ability to do stuff and, and we don't have the ability to change it. And so I think that kind of irritation at that way of thinking and talking about technology drove us towards the approach that we took in this book, which is to really focus on the, the broader social systems that technology is kind of situated within and the way that it's shaped and the way that power and money and relationships shape technology and then are kind of shaped by it. And anything else on the socio-technical tip? I guess two things. One is also I want to do a shout out to Jess and Marianne at the workshop who are folks that do incredible uh, training and teaching of how to talk about change and making stories and narratives that help with change. We had kind of had these similar ideas about uh, socio-technical systems and this force of nature before we did any training with them, but they their training really kind of helps highlight some of that. So shout out to them for helping hone our work, uh, whether they know it or not. And then the other thing is kind of linked into the socio-technical system, something that we kind of have hated on a bit. And in the beginning, I was absolutely guilty of is this idea that digital life is different from real life and that, you know, and people still do it all the time and it does drive me nuts that it's like, oh, in real life we do this. But actually most of my life is in front of a computer screen. That is my real life. That's not different from when I go away or go outside. That's just inherently intertwined and they're not separate things. Um, so that's another kind of axe to grind in that area. But I think that all links into the socio-technical systems as well as that it's people doing stuff that brings these to life. It's not technologies over here and people are over here and they're all kind of, they rely on each other to work. Yeah. And like, I I also, um, sorry, I'm now jumping back to the podcast. I think like one of the things that I loved about this podcast when I listened to it is that it's a really good example of how to critique, how to review, sort of it's almost creating this new kind of um, vocabulary about how to talk about film like um and I was thinking about this idea of the critic or the I don't know what you'd call it I don't know analyst I also think of the word analyst as well when I think about that and I myself have always thought that whatever you're critiquing this is silly me this is a stupid thought but I've always thought what you're critiquing it has to be serious it has to be you know really really you know just serious for some reason and I think that what I loved about this podcast and the fact that the laughter lift is in there is that what it seems to be saying is that critique can be playful as well. And I, I think about your slide project and some other projects, and I just wonder about the place of play and, you know, looking at things that are very, very wrong and making comment about them. Is there room for it or does it need to be serious? Or obviously it doesn't have to be binary. I just realise it's probably a combination of both. I think there's definitely room for play. And I think, as you say, Mark and Simon do a very good job of that. And I hope you keep digging into their, you know, 20 years of podcasts. <laughs> you know, there's some really great examples of that and how, you know, Mark, the kind of expert in film and Simon kind of work together to kind of bring out those critiques. But I think that in Kelly and my work, and I guess when I say work, we both do kind of 
client work that can be a little bit more dry and then kind of our own writing projects that sometimes are commissioned and then just like whatever we want, uh, which is how the kind of slide project came up. And I think play definitely has a space and we're so lucky that in our job, we get to make stuff up. Like sometimes we have to do specific things because we're hired to do a job and you can't just wing that so much. But with the slideshow and kind of other projects that we do, we realize actually within the time and the resources we have, we can kind of do whatever we want. And we do have to think about like does it kind of fit with anti-static generally well enough um but I think this idea of play has been really important to us play with form and play a way of playing with ways of doing things because a it makes our job tolerable and exciting and something that I want to do but also like everything is made up I guess I think about it a lot everything is made up sometimes for a very very good reason rules are often there for a reason not always but that you know within reason making stuff up is kind of great so I think there's no reason that you can't bring play into these kind of ideas of critique and things as long as you do it with respect and I think that's a kind of key thing as well with Mark and Simon like even if Mark hates something he's 99% of the time will not rant about it sometimes he does and it's hilarious but you know there's uh you know he realizes that there are people on the other end of that too and I think that's important to keep in mind yeah and I think um playing with form and not being too serious about form or like creating and sustaining a form that works for you is something that's been important to us and 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 a, a playful experience and so I think we we're very professional in many aspects of our work and then we're kind of studiously unprofessional in other aspects um which might mean using tools like digital tools in ways that they're not intended to or just coming up with our own structure for projects um based on what we're interested in or based on what's sustainable for us and I think that's another reason that play is important because if something feels playful it's maybe more of a, more sustainable to do and so I think the slide deck project that we did which was just making graphic slides every week based on whatever we were thinking about and whatever we were reading that was sustainable because it uh was playful and relatively easy and um visually anarchic and so we didn't need to spend all of our energy focusing on creating professional looking images um and instead we could just kind of riff on the form and uh yeah and play with it and I think like even just listening to you both talk as well um uh, I'll probably say this the wrong way because I'm like utopian feeling utopian at the moment I'll feel dystopian in about half an hour but like I just um just this idea that um if we keep doing things the way we've always done them it it keeps in place a lot of those power structures if you know what I mean like I'm just I'm just thinking like the slide you know like the slide deck feels very different to an essay which has to fit into a certain you know structure and I just I think that's why I got so much out of it was just like, oh, I'm reading tons about meta. I'm reading tons about, you know, like um, data sovereignty, but, you know, seeing it like this, where we're sort of, you know, seeing it like this is making it making it seem different in my head, which I thought was really useful for me. That's awesome. And I mean, sometimes, Kelly, as you probably have seen, we're on hiatus with the slides at the moment. And that's another <laughs> another kind of, I guess, good thing about making stuff up as we go along is that we realize at the moment it wasn't happening so and I would always feel bad about it or whatnot so we realized if we put on pause rather than shut it down then maybe we'll we'll get this kind of joy back again and uh and hopefully start it again soon but we'll see how that goes we'll start something else oh I'm really excited about this idea yeah sorry I I'm always thinking about how to sustain things and I really like this idea that you know like there's got to be room yeah I don't know I I just really like the things that you're saying um 
I, I sort of want to move to the book, but I kind of have a more general question first, if it's okay. I'm really interested in the parts of technology that we kind of wall off with gatekeeping and the parts of technology that we interact with very freely. And I was just thinking while I was reading, especially the stuff about data sovereignty, I'm kind of thinking that feels like an absolute black box to me whenever I'm, you know, like it's very ironic that we're recording this on Zoom. But like, um, you know, I'm, I'm very unclear of what's happening right now. You know, I'm often looking at my phone thinking, is my camera on or off? You know, and I'm just wondering if through your work, uh, and I guess also there's parallels, you know, I don't exactly know how electricity works, but using electricity is relatively low. It's not going to take my fingerprint, I don't think. Um, and I'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts about where these sort of edges are, like the edge between, you know, you go here's here's a tool you use it as much as you want and then there's that line where it's like you're not allowed to use or do this stuff it's a it's a great and rich question and we definitely think a lot about what is walled off and like what the layperson is allowed access to because we have done lots of work about like automated decision making algorithms ai which is literally a black box you know there are black box algorithms where even the computer scientists who are making the technology don't know how it works um because that's the, the way that the that's the way the algorithm is designed um and so what you get to see is the inputs and then the outputs and i think that for us maybe as non-computer scientists, as people who aren't coders beyond a little bit of HTML and CSS and so forth. I think this is why the kind of this approach of looking at the socio-technical system is so important because what we can see more clearly is often the input. So when you say if there is a black box algorithm or a system you don't understand, what stuff is going into it? Like what kind of information is going into your phone, you know, in terms of video, um, in terms of other kind of inputs, and then in terms of what kind of values or power structures people who are designing that technology are working within, right? So you can kind of make an educated guess about what kinds of values and power structures and actual data is informing those systems. And then on the other side of the black box, you can see the impacts, like you can see both what kinds of results the algorithm or the machine is spitting out. And then you can see how the people, um, how people use or mobilize those outcomes and how they use it to make political decisions or commercial decisions, um, how it affects people's lives and how it's kind of fed back into these systems. So I think um, for us, again, as people who really relate to this, you know, just this layperson's view of, I don't know how this works, like, what is my phone looking at? Um, I think we look around the edges, we look at like the systems that they're part of, and we're looking at what goes into them and what comes out of them. And um, drawing conclusions based on that, because I think just as importantly is literally how it works in terms of how the algorithm works and, and uh, how electricity works. I don't fully know either. Um, <laughs> it's important to, to say, you know, what is it doing? How is it being used? Like whose power is it building? whose power is it reducing, et cetera. Um, but I think that also having some knowledge where you learning about these things and how they work in broad strokes is important and you can learn about it. You know, I think that I wrote down in my notes, our, our, like just some brief notes that we made, I wrote down Foucault power knowledge, which I won't go into. I'm like, what a freaking nerd. But um, I think this, this idea that power and knowledge are inextricably linked. And so, you know, knowledge gets leveraged as a source of power and gets gatekept. And then on the other hand, 
power and people in power shape what is appropriate knowledge, right? Like, is it is it why is it computer scientists that are upheld um, versus, you know, people who are like working in oral traditions or, you know, other kinds of like um, knowledge systems. So that is a long way of saying that we like to look around the edges of what these things are doing and what's feeding into them. And then we also like to think about who gets to have power and who gets to have knowledge. Anna, anything to add? Yeah, oh, not, not too much. <laughs> I guess kind of feeding into that as well, this idea of um, looking around the edges is that a lot of companies and organizations and, you know, government agencies and all sorts don't make that easy at the moment, you know, like the typical example is the extremely long terms and conditions that you need to read in order to understand what you're doing with your data. And that's, you know, terrible, I think. And I think there's heaps of things that can be done to make that better and easier for people, whether that's in people's best interest, companies' best interest in terms of what they want to achieve is another thing. But I think that you, a lot can be done without, you know, showing people the code, whether, you know, and for me, if someone showed me, you know, the code or something, I'd just... I can't read that. So that's not actually helpful. Um, but, you know, telling me what criteria was used to make a decision, what kind of data you're using, where it came from, like that's something I can understand. And that also in the kind of research projects we've been part of and just kind of our work in general, that's the kind of stuff that really builds trust and helps people understand things. It's not actually rocket science. It's kind of general good communication and also realize, realizing that actually sometimes you don't doesn't need to be all of the information that's shared. It's just the key stuff that kind of helps you to understand things. Yeah, I really love that. I love that. And I was just, I, I in my notes, um, I was just thinking a little bit of um, Julie and Oliver's work, you know, like, um, you know, that idea of making the invisible kind of visible, I think is really interesting. And I love this idea um, it just feels really powerful what you're saying that instead of me having to go and learn to be a computer scientist, that idea of looking around the edges, I think is such a, I don't know, it's such a compelling idea. And Although I think it can also turn you into a conspiracy theorist as well. Yeah. I was saying that, you know, there's also the kind of like, whatever detective crazy wall with the red strings um piecing together the things from around the edges, because you're not allowed to look at the center, which I think mm. is like, the paranoid approach to technology that many of us are it, it's easy to be primed to take that approach as well and to think that things feeding everything feeding into it is nefarious and everything coming out of it is nefarious and I think one reason it's good to talk to actual computer scientists as well is because as Anna said it, it's not rocket science and sometimes technology can't do the big scary things that you're worried that it can do um but but even basic technology and um more basic algorithms can still be deployed in really you know messed up ways um and so yeah I think looking around the edges while being careful not to over extrapolate what technology can do I think is important as well that's just my caveat <laughs> I like that and it makes me think about films again like I was just thinking about the way films have kind of primed me you know that fictional world has primed me to think ah you know like oh my gosh um we I used to work with someone who had this term called automagical and she would say oh yeah no it's not automagical don't worry it can't read your mind I was like oh jolly good um one of the freaking impressive things about the book that you produced is the fact that there is a very wide range of voices in the book and they um and a variety of ways of communicating those voices through and I think it's just a credit to you both as editors and I guess I was really interested to talk a little bit about that role of editor 
and um like obviously you have a lot of experience in it and in, in your other work but I just wonder f- particularly for a book that I think comes at such an important time as far as land back um sovereignty um you know like colonization all those things like I'm just I don't know can you tell me anything about that process of editing or what it was to sort of work with um yeah like work with other people's work I guess is what I'm interested in yeah yeah I think I can start off and when we so I'm gonna rewind a bit so the book is a a sequel I guess or a second Mm. in a second volume in um a series the first one being shouting zeros and ones that uh Andrew Chen edited back in 2020 and so we were authors of a chapter in that book about digital inclusion and during that process we saw Andrew do a similar thing of bringing together all these authors and being in these kind of big excellent email chains where he did such a good job of bringing kind of authors together and then sort of threw out whether anyone was interested in doing a second volume and Kelly and I put our hands up and kind of talked to Andrew about that and then got in touch with the folks at BWB through that process from there we realized that a lot of it is kind of making it up there's obviously things you need to do you need to get figure out what chapters you want to have in the book who you want to be in the book um and kind of being able to lean into these different ways of writing and things um but I think we learned so much along the journey a lot of it is just realizing that everyone's always making things up as they go along uh, so we know how to edit essays and we know how to write but that kind of it's a lot of admin as well I guess is what I would say about editing there's a lot of admin a lot of communication being in touch with you know we had 18 authors in the book one of the things that I think we were really excited about with this book was a chance to get in touch with a bunch of people whose work we really expect and who um, whose voices we really value and who we're really impressed by and sometimes scared of um, because they're just you know doing important and cool work uh And so it was really great for us to have a chance to be like, hey, now we've got a reason to reach out to all of these people and essentially ask them to do pretty much free labor. But um, uh, we were so excited by that. So I think we went into it with a feeling of kind of like openness and excitement. And then I think also we try and be fairly aware of our subject position as two Pākehā you know, women. Um, So we don't know it all and we can't speak about everything. Um, And so we really wanted to talk about what it would take to have a technological world that is built for everyone. And so we wanted to make sure that we reflected that in the authors that we worked with on the book. Um, And we also wanted to make sure that we respected people's time and energy um, and ways of doing things and so I think we really tried and I'm sure we failed in some ways but we tried pretty hard to work with people in the ways that worked for them and give people the amount of editing support that they needed or that they wanted you know um, and also to fight figure out forms um, that were appropriate for people so some of the essays were a little bit more scholarly because we were working with you know professors and academics Um, Some of them are a bit more conversational and then some of them were kind of done in conversation. Um, And so they, each of the different forms like allowed for different, different voices to come out and hopefully reflected um, 
people's point of view, you know, relatively truthfully. What I think sounds amazing is that it almost feels like this process represents, um, like I, I often think that we are working in feedback loops, if you know what I mean. And like just this idea that the process will feed into other thinking about, you know, like it, it can't but help think about the ideas that are in the book, if you know what I mean. Like it, it, just this idea of openness. I really like what you said about maybe being a little bit frightened because I think sometimes I sort of just say, no, I won't do that. And sometimes the hard things are the things that help the most in some ways. I just think the book kind of resonates with that energy of conversation, which I think is so good. That's awesome. Um, In terms of what you're saying just now, it makes me think also about how us being in the role of editor, you're kind of, it's kind of being a go-between. And I think, um, and also negotiating power in terms of what the publishing industry looks like and what books look like. And BWB are incredible publishers to work with and really open to ideas. But I think when you look at a book and you look at one of their books, you're like, oh, there's a way that these things kind of generally tend to work. You know, there's a way that the layout tends to work. There's a way that authors tend to be, tend to be listed and stuff. And so I think for us, we were a go-between between the authors and these, the structure of the book and the structure of publishing. And I think it was a an experiment and an experience and a learning opportunity for us to be able to be the best advocates for the authors that we could be and so if some of the chapter authors said oh we want to have our names listed like this you know I think for me it was like a good way to like interrogate my own like relationship to power and authority as well because I'm like oh no but books are done like this you know and this is the way that it's always been done and to be like no how can we actually advocate for the authors and how can I like learn to stand up for the authors and be a little bit less beholden to power and authority and trying to try and be a good advocate and a good ally rather than just saying, oh no, well, we should just do it the way that it's always been done. Um, And again, I don't know that we always succeeded, but it was good to learn to try. And we learned so much through that process. And I think another example is, you know, some of the chapters have more authors than others. And that was, you know, a combination of ways, I think in the first book, which again, for me, at least I took as a little bit of a blueprint or quite a big bit of a blueprint of there were some uh, co-written chapters, but there weren't kind of big groups. And there were, as we approached authors, some groups that wanted everyone's name who worked on a project or a larger group of people that came from different aspects of a topic all to be on there. And at first I was kind of nervous about having, you know, three to five people listed, but then realized that that's fine. And BWB folks were so good about it and really, you know, didn't really question it. And so realizing that actually sometimes you just got to ask or advocate or do that. And it's not actually that scary, but that especially if it goes up against what you think something's meant to be, um, that actually you've got to do what's right for the people and for the story and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think like what I'm also hearing, which I really love is that what it sounds like this approach means that there's opportunity for you both to be surprised by some of the work that comes in if you know what I mean like it's not I don't know I I think I've worked on projects before where it's like um Pip I would like you to prove this you know like could you go out and do that and then you come back and they're like yes that is what I wanted you to do thank you very much um and I just wonder does anything stand out as a surprise or does anything stand out that you thought things one way and then through this process of collecting these together you thought wow that's interesting I guess that because this like the topics in the book Kelly and I not 100% but were like generally comfortable at least 
at a high level, like absolutely not experts in most of the areas. But I think for me, the robots in the workplace mm. one and how that chapter kind of both in the work that those folks are doing with the Mata Tech project and the way that those the three kind of parts of the project um, work together was a kind of that chapter I think I knew the least about and learned the most about just because it was such a, a steep learning curve around what I didn't know before. So that one in particular. And I think I also learned heaps from, uh, so there's the chapter with uh, Amber Craig and Hiria Tarangi, and they are uh, amazing folks who we'd asked to write a chapter originally, and they just didn't have the time. It was over the COVID, the Delta um, outbreak, and they were doing so much work in their communities, and they just didn't have the time to do it. And Kelly and I were so bummed out, but I actually realized that their voices were really important, and what they had to say, we really wanted to be in the book. So we then offered to kind of do the sort of editing side and have an interview instead. So use an hour of their time rather than what it takes to write a book. And I think through just having that Zoom call with them and that discussion and that conversation, that was another, you know, huge privilege for us to be able to learn straight from those folks. Um, so that was another kind of big thing for me, I think. But in terms of um, real curve balls and things, a lot was just in the process and what we learned rather than the kind of specifics, but being able to elevate other people's voices was kind of huge for us. And I've just been thinking back to the beginning of this conversation about jokes and thinking about structure and how structure and content kind of like mutually shape one another. And so I think that um, in giving some openness to how people structure their chapters, like the um, robots in the workplace chapter that Anna just mentioned, which is about um, this team doing research into the opportunities for using robots and um augmented reality for agricultural purposes and so in kind of like um, uh, horticultural regions and that project was being done as a common you know sociologists and um, uh, sociologists and computer scientists and like Māori kind of like um, design experts I guess all working together um, to do this uh, ethnographic research and then actual kind of computer science work and I think the way that they kind of formed the chapter ended up being in a bunch of sections that covered the different elements of the project and so ended up kind of being a fractal approach um, where the picture of this project kind of comes together through multiple voices and um, that really felt like one where the form of the project reflected the content of it and then I think um, yeah also the the chapter with Amber and Hidia where I think that was a cool opportunity for us to realize that we can find a way to make the important conversations work and to, to get them included in, in this book. And that also having something that's done in interview format is interesting for readers as well. And I think giving people a variety of forms to engage with is cool and hopefully makes the book more approachable um, for people of different interests. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and just going back to that chapter, I often, this is, again, I have so many silly ideas, but I often think of technology being based in Silicon Valley and you know just this idea that it is something that's happening over there and that intersection of um, AI and agriculture just kind of yeah I and it reminded me like years ago when I I wrote an article for a, an engineering magazine which was about a um, robotic um, viscerator a viscerator that worked on the um, um, freezing works and and one of the most telling things to me was talking to someone who worked um, on the line with this thing and the idea that there were humans working next door to these robotic um, yeah like um, friends and workmates just that there's this opportunity to sort of think of it in a sociological way 
rather than a technology way. I just yeah, I think well, just to chime in on that, I think it was really cool to see technology. And this is an example of, you know, user-centered design or human-centered design, as you said, but to see it playing out in what feels feels like a more organic way where you're talking to the people who do this work already and saying what would be useful to you and using that as a starting point for design rather than what often happens in user testing, which is that you build something 75% of the way and then you go and consult with the users or you ask them a few questions about something that you've already built. But to kind of flip the script into actually go and look at how do people work and then to ask them what might be useful for you and then to kind of like design something in collaboration is pretty cool and pretty cool to see how that can happen on the ground. And, and like, again, I love, I, I just love the way the book, the introduction starts completely with this very like positive, arguably sort of human idea of just wanting to make, you know, a world that works for everybody. I can't remember your exact words, but just this beautiful idea. And I love the way you talk about technology being misrepresented as a force of nature. I went to a a cost of living workshop this week and everybody was talking about the economy that way. You know, we think about the economy as like this, this thing that's natural or, you know, like inflation is going up. So we just have to sack everybody. There's no other way. It totally forgetting that we are the ones in control of the drivers and we're in control of it all. And I think that's what's so interesting about that chapter to me is as well as flipping the switch it's flipping the power of it all and yeah it's just it's amazing and I think again that is one of the huge strengths of the book um and that it it just just the the new way it allows me to think about these things is just I'm really grateful for it it's really makes me feel a lot more hope um I have got one question left and it's a question that I'm asking everyone and I want to ask you it in a particular way so I'm going to start and not talking perhaps about you guys personally, but I'm very interested in asking people about how we sustain this work that we do. And one of the things that became very apparent when I was reading the book is this, how we sustain activism. We've got these huge disparities where we have these companies that are literally the most richest, you know, they have the most money in the world. And then we have people that are trying to do things. I think even Fareha Haura, you know, described themselves as a labor of love, you know, and I just wonder if you've got any thoughts about that disparity and sustaining it and power and I mean god we could probably talk for another five hours about that but yeah I don't know Anna do you want to start on the trickiest question on the planet I don't expect any answers I just I'm just interested in thoughts about it really yeah yeah I'm I mean you're there's especially with technology and you know the the huge companies the huge tech companies and the power and capital and money they have and their founders have is just it's mind-bogglingly large and you know unethical and and you know like people shouldn't be a hundred times over billionaires while they're you know it, it should it's very basic to say but it's also that the, the folks that we also need to keep pressuring to give up some of their power and I don't know how that's gonna happen and I think that that's one of the reasons we kind of wanted to start that book with the the book with the this up beat kind of we want this world the world for everyone because it's really hard to argue with that but I think it's uh you know when you read that on the page you think oh yeah I can get behind that and I'm pretty sure that people who have very different backgrounds from me would also say that but when you have to dig down on how you would build that that rebalancing of power is so important so I think folks are going to 
keep working and keep doing activism because it's so important and has to be done but it is such a grind and I mean Kelly and I do a little bit in our work and but the folks that we see just kind of broadly I don't know how to stand like it's hard to sustain that and I think you know the answer being like self-care is a shitty answer to give but I think it's also making sure that you can sustain it yourself and I think about that quite a bit in my work because Kelly and I have quite different energy levels and I know what my limits are very strongly well we both do but mine are quite low in some particular areas so it's you know you like you Kelly laughs but she knows it's true there's sometimes I just need to stop and I think that on a personal level I know how to kind of regulate my own energy but I don't know how you scale up that to everyone doing activism like I wish that we people didn't have to do it because it's hard uh and I just wish that people would give up give up some of their power and control but I that's too much to ask obviously no I think I'm usually the one who's doing like a little guillotine motion in the background but that's, <laughs> that's, just having, that's just having a laugh as well I think there are other ways to um encourage people to give up power and control or to build alternative kinds of power right um that can uh, counteract, you know, these more hegemonic forces. Um, I think in terms of sustaining things, it is hard. And I think some of it is like, you got to have a laugh and you got to find people that you like to work with. And like thinking about, you know, the two, the ways that I've had that I found friends where I live now, you know, has been often through activism and then through being part of a community arts organization kind of, which is a lot of kind of like maintenance work and like the sustaining work and just like doing the real grindy stuff together is often fun, you know, like sweeping a floor or, I don't know, um, stuffing envelopes, Um, like doing that work and having a reason to get together in person, have a laugh, talk shit, you know, that stuff is fun and sustaining in itself. And so I think for me, that's the way that I am sustained. And same with Anna as well, like working with Anna, it is like having a laugh and realizing that if we feel stuck, we can just take a break, talk about fun and funny stuff and the ideas will flow or like, you know, we'll we'll get back on track. Um, But I think I, I don't want to discount how serious and how difficult it is to keep things going. And we were actually work with a, an organization called the maintainers, which are kind of, kind of like a research think tank who are dedicated to like uplifting and thinking about ideas of like maintenance and care, which is often historically work that's done by like women and other feminized people. And, um, you know, people from the global South often just this work of keeping things going and cleaning things up. And so I think we want to celebrate that work as well and think about the fact that it's important um, and necessary. And yeah, while acknowledging that it's challenging and that the people who often have to do that work are really underappreciated and underpaid and under-celebrated. Uh, so long story short, I don't know how we sustain it, but you got to try and have a laugh. Yeah, I I um, I just listening to you, I just this thought kicking coming to my mind. It's almost like the system as it is at the moment doesn't want people to be active. I was just thinking, oh, it's almost like the people in power want to protect their power. Oh, go figure. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I just, I think those are really helpful. I I think that the thing is, I don't know, like less and less as, you know, because I think it is, it is tricky. Like I think the grind is tricky and the disappointments are tricky and the, um, you know, thinking um are we still fighting this you know does this still seem like an unreasonable request you know like 20 years later but I think you know this idea of less and less I'm thinking about answers I think and more and more I'm just thinking what happens if we bring it to the light you know like what happens if we say actually you know this stuff is hard and it's not that people 
grow old and get, you know, um, they don't lose these ideas. They perhaps just are exhausted. But yeah, it sounds great. And I also just wonder, like, I mean, um, from the outside, another thing that I've always been impressed with you is you seem to have worked out a way to have a business that is really successful and also have this you know, wonderful, like anti, what I really like about anti-static is that all the projects seem to come from the same place, you know, like, um, I'm just thinking about the Christmas project you did last year with those great cards and stuff. And I just, I just wonder, like, I mean, you've talked, you've been so generous with your time, but I just wonder, is there anything you want to say about that idea? You know, like, you know, like anti-static is a thing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think anti-static is a weird combo because as well as the stuff that you've probably seen lots of people see of the kind of the book and the print object and the slideshow and these fun things that we, and our writing that goes online and things. We also have a practice of doing kind of client work, often with government agencies, but also with um, NGOs and um, other groups that are working on kind of more policy stuff or editing reports or writing reports or things that are, you know, different and a quite a different kind of writing and those that I think we've been able to find a balance of client work and kind of fun work that work together that has been able to sustain us as both a business and in our kind of practice because I think that the stuff that we do that isn't client work makes our client work better because we keep thinking about other things and I think that if we dropped one or other it wouldn't be sustainable either financially or kind of or we would get less good at our jobs so I think that we've just I think both of us together try our best to realize that, yeah, we can kind of make stuff up as we go along in terms of what happens outside of our client work and that will feed into that. And so, again, I think we've realized we can make up a lot of the rules. There are some some rules you have to follow when you have a business, but some things in terms of how you do it, you can kind of make up as you go along and that's not failure. That's usually going to make you better, I think. Totally. And I think like the realization that we could do both of those things under the same umbrella. So like the more serious um, client work and then the more not frivolous, but like uh, lighthearted public facing work I think I was a little bit anxious at first that if somebody who was going to hire us saw that we make, you know, a weird slide deck or write kind of like funny or goofy essays or overtly political essays, um, it might put people off from hiring us. But I think we've been surprised and mostly delighted to see that people like that we do both things, you know, and that they a lot of people find it interesting that we do this other work outside of our, you know, report writing and, and researching and things like that. Um, and even, you know, one quite serious minded uh, potential technology client that we talked to a while ago, they said, oh, we found your essay about Mark Zuckerberg's T-shirts or something. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, because these are like serious and quite dry technology guys, you know, who were having a good chat with. But then I was like, oh, no, they found that. I mean, it's on our website. Of course, they can find it. But I was kind of a little bit appalled that they'd done that digging. Um which isn't even digging. And they're like, we loved it. We thought it was great. And I was so relieved, you know? And so I think just to learn over time that those two parts of our practice can coexist relatively, you know, um, uh, in a complimentary way has been really fun and a relief. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to separate out those two parts and we can do both of those things. And it's just, I mean, what, I mean, this is my brain as well, sort of thinking as my past life as an educator, like this idea that professional development or you know like 
like ongoing education, lifelong education can take the form of, you know, like maybe there is learning to be had in, in play and in art. And yeah, I just, it's a real, it's it's a really optimistic thing for me to hear. And I just think you're, you're both amazing. And um, yeah, I just want to thank you both so much for your time. And um, yeah, thank you so much for this talk. Thank you for having us. I think you're amazing as well. And I just wanted to say that one of my favorite things that I read last year, I think it was last year, when your uh, when your book came out, um, there was a little excerpt that was published. I can't remember where, but it had this description of um, an Alison Holst Meals Without Meat recipe for making a crustless quiche, I think it was. And I've obviously, I've lived that, I've lived the crustless quiche life, the Alison Holst <laughs> Meals Without Meat life. And also the kind of like scumbag, you know, whatever, no money, trying to find something for a potluck life. And I almost died reading that. That <laughs> it was so good. I was like, wow. I was trying to describe it to one of my friends here who cannot relate. If you if you haven't lived the meals without meat life, you can't relate. But it was incredible and so resonant. And so I was like, that's why I think Pip's great. <laughs> Oh, cheers, mate. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel really sad now that I'm vegan that I can't make crustless. I tried to make a vegan crustless quiche the other day and it was not so great. I think I need Anna's help with that. But yeah, I, I just, yeah, I, I um yeah, I, God bless the crustless quiche, uh, the crustless quiche and Alison Holst. Yeah, she's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you.